0: Australia is being thrown into entirely unnecessary upheaval and division this year as the Prime Minister asks us to consider whether or not to change the Constitution. And that really is the crux of the question, whatever the topic. It is the quintessential question which progressivism demands always be answered yes and which conservatism demands be carefully considered, weighed and cautiously responded to. Well, this week I had the enormous privilege of not just meeting, but listening to a former High Court Justice on this question. He voted in favor of the 1967 referendum regarding constitutional equality for Aboriginal Australians. In fact, over 90% of votes cast were in favor of the question posed by the Liberal Party Prime Minister, Harold Holt, which was to change the constitution to omit certain words relating to the people of the Aboriginal race in any state, and so that Aboriginals are to be counted in reckoning the population. What the Liberal Party did to remove discrimination between races over half a century ago, the so-called progressives want to put back in once again to create special rights for Australians on the basis of their racial heritage alone, some Australians. You see, it's not that conservatives are necessarily reactionary, for when change is carefully considered and found merited, it can indeed be achieved with unifying popular support and without the overwrought emotional manipulation of this year's Yes campaign. The symposium I attended on the Wednesday was held by the Samuel Griffith Society, named after Australia's first Chief Justice of the High Court. The Society's general objectives are to educate Australians, to support research about the Constitution, and to promote discussion of constitutional matters, defending the virtues of the Constitution, and more. In this episode, I've taken a three-hour symposium and reduced it to a half-hour of highlights and excerpts And highly recommend it to everyone to build your understanding of some of the issues to bear in mind as we steward the privilege of carefully considering the proposed changes to our constitution this year and the future direction of our nation. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God
1: for the happiness of mankind.
2: by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines.
0: But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force.
3: Australia is not
0: a secular country, it is a free country. Welcome to The Church and State Show, I'm Dave Pellow. Well, support for the Prime Minister's referendum to add another chapter to one of the 10 most enduring and successful constitutions in the world is dropping. But we should never rest in our efforts to advocate for good public policy. The questions I think voters should be asking are, What actual problem is this change to the constitution seeking to solve and how confident can we be that it will work? Has a similar solution been tried before and failed? Is there a better way to solve the gap in outcomes, which some Aboriginals experience mostly in remote communities? One of the most important questions progressives seem allergic to is what are the follow on consequences and unintended effects of making this change? Proverbs 22, verse 8 says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone, which was put in place by your ancestors. Allow me to introduce the following four speakers, who each spoke at this week's symposium on the additional Canberra voice. Stuart Wood, AM, KC, is a barrister who has acted in the High Court of Australia on occasions. The High Court is Australia's highest legal authority and makes final decisions about matters to do with Australia's constitution. Some of the high profile clients Stuart Woods has acted for include Professor Peter Ridd and rugby star Israel Folau. Most of you will know the next three speakers. Dr. Gary Johns was on a recent episode of the Church and State Show and was the past chairman of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. He was also a former Labour MP and the Special Minister for State under Prime Minister Paul Keating. Warren Mundine was also a former Labour politician and a former National President of the Australian Labour Party. Prime Minister Tony Abbott appointed Warren as Chairman of the Indigenous Advisory Council, a role which, to his credit, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull also appointed him to. Warren knows just about everything there is to know about what works and what doesn't in Aboriginal bureaucracies, such as the current prime minister is proposing Australia should enshrine in the constitution. The fourth speaker, Amanda Stoker, is also a barrister and is a former federal senator for Queensland and served as the assistant minister to the attorney general in the Morrison government. She has also served as a Commonwealth prosecutor, as well as a judge's associate to Philip McMurdo in the Supreme Court of Queensland, and to Ian Callanan in the High Court of Australia. Speaking of whom, it was indeed an honour to meet and exchange phone numbers with the Honourable Ian Callinan, AC Casey, at this event. He is a former justice of the High Court of Australia, and was appointed as a Queen's counsel 45 years ago. He has appeared in nearly all areas of the law and in many high-profile cases. Ian Cullenan is considered a strong defender of federalism. His judgments show a strong reluctance to depart from the original intent of the Constitution, and he has expressed a clear preference for a restrained interpretation of the Constitution and for significant developments to be by way of referendum rather than judicial decision. Do not miss that one, coming up soon. The following excerpts from these speakers' papers are all quite brief. So I hope you enjoy and increase your understanding of some of the considerations we must weigh before the coming constitutional referendum.
3: I don't quite understand why we are here because this is a, solution in search of a problem. There there is no problem with the Commonwealth's power to legislate in relation to Aboriginal affairs. That was the outworking of the 1967 referendum. The Commonwealth has power to hurt and harm as well as to help Aborigines and um, there was a great paper by another great Queensland barrister who passed away uh, on Monday, David Jackson, and Uh, that paper that he gave to the Senate committee made that point. He'd also published the same type of paper about three months earlier to his colleagues in New Chambers in Sydney, and there's been no answer to it. He made the point that the combination of Section 5126, the Territory's Power and the Incidental Power, empowers the Commonwealth to do whatever it likes in relation to Aboriginal affairs. And no doubt, as we're going to hear from Warren, Uh, The Commonwealth has used that power extensively over the last uh, 55 years, uh, for good and bad. And I wonder why we are here talking about a constitutional amendment that is totally unnecessary. One doesn't go and have heart surgery because it's good manners. You have heart surgery because there's a need to have heart surgery. And the case for this constitutional amendment is totally unproven. There is no need for it. Um, I, to my mind, that is really the end of the matter, and perhaps explains why there hasn't been a constitutional convention, unlike 1999. The parliamentary committee that was meant to scrutinise the government's proposal uh, only had two weeks for public submissions. The government doesn't want to answer questions about what's proposed. There is indeed a culture of fear which is stifling free and open debate on this question. That's why it's so important to have gatherings such as this. And I look forward to a stimulating set of speeches. So thank you.
4: I wanna thank the Samuel Griffith Society who uh, have really stayed true to the course of upholding the constitution, which ultimately is what this debate is about. Um, I spoke to an Aboriginal woman from Fremantle yesterday morning who said she's an opponent of The Voice and she said to me, we did this in 1967, why are we doing it all again? The government wants to establish a permanent voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This voice would be a huge change to the way Australia is governed. Indeed, as the Prime Minister has said, it would be a very brave government that said it shouldn't follow the the advice of the voice. The proposed constitutional amendment would destroy reconciliation. A small group selected by race would have immense power to advise Parliament on government, uh, uh, sorry, and government on everything forever. The Albanese government also wants to establish a powerful Macarata Commission. The Commission would supervise treaties between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and other Australians. Treaties would divide Australians. The Commission would also guide a new truth-telling exercise, trawling through Australian history. A better way to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples would be for Parliament and Government to work directly with traditional owners at a local level to solve problems. Such a method is more in keeping with the way Aboriginal society is organised. The S yes case assumes that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples do not have a voice. They do have voices. They have the Parliament and 11 members of the Parliament are of Aboriginal descent. The proposal is an affront to equal citizenship in Australia. To the Australian Constitution, a form of recognition exists in the Constitution. Section 5126 of the Constitution gives the Parliament the power to make special laws for people of any race a power used exclusively for the benefit of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The Albanese government is really seeking much more than recognition. It's seeking a permanent institution called a voice. The constitution sets out the powers of the major institutions of Australian democracy. Parliament, executive government, the judiciary and the states the voice would rank alongside these foundations of Australian democracy. Unlike these institutions, the voice would exercise power for one self-serving group. The Prime Minister makes frequent reference to the kalma lankton report as the voice model likely to be implemented following a referendum. kelma devised a scheme to have 24 national members selected by 35 Aboriginal groups, formed at a regional level, assembling in Canberra on a permanent basis. The voice model preferred by the Prime Minister refers not only to the process of giving advice, which already exists throughout the Commonwealth Government and Parliament, but also aims to bind the Government and the Parliament to consultation standards across all Commonwealth public policy. Such standards will tie government decision-making in knots. While The Voice may not have a veto over legislation or government policy, it would have a platform on which to trade its ability to delay and grandstand for votes in the parliament. Politicians would trade with The Voice members to do their bidding. The Voice would have a permanent platform to lobby government on matters affecting all Australians. There is no evidence that the proposed constitutional amendment would close the gap between the minority of Aboriginal people who need help and other Australians. Take, for example, two enduring issues in Aboriginal communities, banning alcohol and the basics card. Aboriginal people are divided on both issues, for and against banning alcohol and for and against the basics card. More voices saying the same contradictory things does not solve problems. Advocates for the voice rarely mention real people. They rarely talk about the pathway leaders chose to escape strife. Aboriginal sports stars, academics, professionals, and university and TAFE graduates made it without changing the constitution. Why not share their secrets of success with those who continue to struggle? The actual living conditions of people in trouble are rarely mentioned by the YES campaign. Most Aborigines are doing about as well as other Australians. Only some Aborigines have been unable to adapt to their circumstances. Much has been done. Aborigines have a voice and are heard. None of this will change lives if the mindset of policy makers, people who support the radical change to Australian politics, never changes. Changing the Australian constitution is not the answer. No thanks, the voice is not the answer. Thank you.
5: You know, I, I, I tell this story of me in Melbourne, there was me, Jacinda Price and this um, South Sudanese bloke, black as the ace of spades he was, mm-hmm. sitting next to each other. And this bloke walked past, and he said, uh, what are you blokes? And we said, oh, we're Liberal Party members and that. And he said, oh, you're a bunch of racists and walked away. <laughs> um, which shocked the South Sudanese. Me and was used to that, but South Sudanese guys looking at his hands going, what the what? <laughs> you know? is that. Um, uh, we don't talk about our history enough, and I understand why, because we think it's natural. It's, na- it's like, it was the Menzies government that gave the vote to all Aboriginals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we don't talk about that much because we think it's natural. Every Australian citizen should have voting rights. It's natural, you know? mm-hmm. uh, The AB study program, that was, uh, was uh, saying the Gordon government, you know, the 67 referendum, made had a bloke, at, I don't know what they teach them at universities, a yeah, university bloke come up, I mean, and he said it was Gough Whitlam who did the 67 referendum. And I said, no, 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 yeah. no you're going to infer- and I want you to sit down and relax a bit because I'm going to tell you something that may give you a heart attack. It was actually Howard, it started the Menzies period, and then, ha- not Howard, it started the Menzies period and was finished by Holt. They're telling us that this is just an advisory group, right? Just like the previous 50 years of advisory groups. And then they're telling us, but they failed. So you know, I'm not too smart. You know, I started my working life as a fitter and turner. Uh, But if you're saying we're just going to be this advisory group, and advisory groups failed, then why are we doing it again? Mm. Why? And not only doing it again, why are we putting it in the constitution, which gives it some really teeth? uh you know and in if and if it this is a panacea, and this is what the prime minister said, and the Minister of Indigenous Australia said it in after uh, at, in um Alice springs that if we had had a voice, this would not have happened well you know uh, might uh, two questions come out of that one is prove it, and two. If you think it's so good, why don't you legislate now and get it done now? Why are you going to wait? What to 2025? This is how long it's going to take. You saw the budget last week. 380 million dollars is set aside with the voice. 380 million. What sort of medical service and, and, and child care service and education program would love that sort of money? Uh, we did some sums. There's a thousand. Yeah, there's a thousand advisory Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island advisory bodies to. Federal government today, a thousand, right, and that's including the the peak one, which is the coalition of, of the peaks, and so, so you've got that, and there you're going to add more complexity to the whole system. Uh, Aboriginal look in '67, you know, the Ficatzi, which was the organisation which campaigned to to the, for the '67 refer- referendum in equality, uh, it was made up of and it's an interesting history, because uh, post-Second World War, uh, it was actually the, the RSL and, and the military who started the campaign with the Aboriginal people, because they, here they were in Papua New Guinea fighting together in the jungles. Here they were in the deserts of Libya and, and that fighting together, and, and in Greece serving in bloody uh, prisons, and in Changi prison of war camps. And when they got home, they couldn't have a beer together. And that was a massive change. Uh, you know, people couldn't believe that. And that's when the Focatsia was set up, and that's when you look at the first people who, who were involved in that organisation, it was all ex-military people, every one of them. And that pushed the argument, well, right, if they're good enough to die in the trench with me or die in Chang'e or whatever, then they're good enough to have a beer with me. Mm. And that's, that's what it was all about. And, and, and it succeeded and won. We won that battle. And, and we won every battle since. And now, and, and you know, was it you? Who was Oh, it was someone earlier said that, um, and I made that comment too it is a solution looking for a problem. Mm. What's the problem?
2: In the limited amount of information that's been provided to the public about what we will get uh, were the proposal for constitutional change to be successful. We are told in generalisations that it won't slow the decision-making process of government or the executive, that it won't make it harder to get projects up or um, develop the economy of this country, and we're told that it won't lead to litigation of matters that are currently within the remit of the democratic class. All of that is presented as a nothing to see here, type of proposition um, and just a bit of consultation. How could anybody be against just a little bit of consultation? And yet, almost in the next breath, people like the Prime Minister would say um, that while the proposal is to entrench a voice, there's not a lot of point in having a voice unless it is also heard. and. If something is heard, then it would be um, improper that it not be acted upon. And so to suggest that it is just a little bit of consultation with no real implications for doing things differently has to be a furphy. In his own words, Prime Minister Albanese said it would be a brave government that didn't do as it was recommended by the Indigenous voice to Parliament. And so while it might be framed as a power to provide recommendations, it nevertheless has something approaching a practical veto, even if it isn't a constitutional one. And that's something that could easily be lost um, if we don't go to the trouble of making sure Australians understand the detail that stands behind um, the concern that those on the no side have on each of those points. I think it's fair to say that the threshold question of who's got standing to run these cases has been lowered enormously since the 1980s. Even on the 1980 formulation, the voice itself would have a clear right to bring a judicial review application. That's without doubt. Um, Where that arises from the failure of a minister to have appropriate regard to the relevant consideration um, that is its representations. But the jurisprudence indicates in the time since then that standing to bring an application is likely to be cast much wider to include organisations that lobby in relation to particular issues that are on the public agenda. That's particularly so, I think, given the significance of national and public interest in helping to improve life outcomes for disadvantaged Aboriginal people. And it's really, I think, vital that Australians understand this impact. The consequence that comes for public understanding of the impact of the voice on executive decision-making is that bodies with an interest in policy or decision-making touching the interests of Aboriginal Australians will be really likely to have rights to bring administrative law proceedings to challenge executive decisions on the grounds that they are affected by jurisdictional error. There's also, I think, a really important historical lesson to take from this. In just nine years, the jurisprudence in relation to standing shifted enormously under the strain of persistent activist litigation, from bodies of this kind, beginning from a position of having no standing whatsoever, to having it pretty much all of the time. It would be, I suggest, quite naive to think that those same lessons would not be applied by those people who seek an expansive and weaponised voice. So I'll bring it together with this. In my view, on a really plain understanding of the proposed amendment to the Constitution, it is extremely likely, and I would suggest certain, be certain to have the effect of giving rise to rights to challenge ministerial decisions on the basis that they're affected by jurisdictional error. That jurisdictional error will arise in a range of circumstances, including, but not limited to, when the minister has failed to adequately take into account the relevant consideration, that is the representations of the voice, or failed to make what the court determines to be a reasonable decision in light of the contents of those representations. Of course, a determination of whether or not a jurisdictional error has occurred necessitates a process before the courts to make that decision but the very fact of adding another and really broad basis for the challenge of decisions, particularly those that involve significant public or private investment, is a deterrent to the very economic development that this nation needs, particularly in the remote places where people need it most. Finally, none of this is to suggest that the scope of administrative law should be redrawn. It's simply to be upfront with Australians about the nature of the impact that can be expected should they decide to add this chapter into the constitution with the rights that it provides for the voice to insert itself into the whole gamut of ministerial decision-making. Thank you for your patience and attendance. I think
1: uh, this referendum is going to divide us again and divide us in a way which we had really eschewed, eschewed in 1967. Now, it's remarkable that in 1967, the whole, uh, a referendum, I might say, in which uh, I enthusiastically and unhesitatingly voted yes. But there's a nasty feel about this. Uh, quite, and I'll come to that a little bit later, but In addition to the nastiness, there's a kind of a presumptuousness, a condescension, a paternalism. You and I, all of us, are being told by the yes side that we need to vote, that we must vote, Uh, yes. And what what surprises me is the way that boards of companies, boards of companies, uh, law societies, Law societies and bar associations are telling their members how they should vote. They, they haven't taken a poll. They haven't, companies haven't taken a poll of their shareholders. Law societies and bars have not taken a poll of their their number of their members. And I, I know some people who uh, run charities, and they they are very disturbed that some members of their boards and some of their chief executives are telling, are saying publicly how people should vote. That seems to me to be uh, an entirely different feature from the 1967 uh, referendum. What is also, I think, very, very different is the the tone, the the nastiness, the, the... denunciatory nature. If you don't vote yes, you're a racist. Now, now, I don't remember anything like that in 1967. So, until now, I've written on this, I've spoken on it, but up until now, I've largely confined myself to what I see as the legal implications of the voice. And one of the problems about that, and it's a threshold problem, is this, we don't really know. We don't really know. And that is a matter, I think, of great concern. So let me take up some of the matters that Amanda spoke about. She spoke about the concept of standing. Well, the concept of standing keeps on expanding. And and there's another difficulty about administrative law. It it does have a capacity, it does have a capacity to blur the divisions of the powers, the separation of the powers. Now, I don't have to define the voice as as a parliament or as some sort of form of uh, executive. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's a voice. It's a metaphor. And you can make you can make out of it practically anything you want. anybody who constitutes the voice who's a member of the voice will be an officer of the Commonwealth there's no doubt about that the Commonwealth will be funding it the conduct the Commonwealth will be establishing an officer of the Commonwealth must give procedural fairness and that is to say, a proper hearing or proper consideration uh, to anybody who has a legitimate grievance, who who has the sort of standing that Amanda's talking about. So it could well be that there'll be a lot of generation, a lot of of litigation generated within uh, different uh, Aboriginal groups, one against the other, but in particular one lot saying that they have been not properly heard by this body that is supposed to represent them in making the representations. And and I've written elsewhere about the the proposition that uh, it just seems to me to be um, a paradox, or that a body that's going to make representations May, will not be, well, I think we can say will not be, itself self-representative. <laughs> now, now, I think Warren, Warren Mundine's view may well be, well, and I don't want to speak for you, Warren, but you, you may well think that, and nor, nor should they be in the sense that the interests will be different. But, but one can see, from any point of view, that there's going to be a great deal of friction about all of this. I don't think I need to say this to you, but I, I would be saying this to the uh, <clears throat> to the yes case people. Uh, you ought to remember what uh, W. E. Gladstone said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But uh, don't mistake the strength of your opinions for the strength of your arguments. Thank <laughs> you.
0: Thanks for watching. You are surely now one of the top 1% of most informed voters on this issue in the nation. If you found this helpful, please share it with your friends and haters and visit the website churchandstate.com.au. There you can become a supporter to help send this ministry further and check out the next Church and State conference dates in a city or region near you. To subscribe to my newsletter and see other recent episodes, visit davepello.com. Thank you, and see you next time.
2: Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.